you have your Bibles with you, will you turn to chapter 1 and verse 6. I'd like to read, starting at chapter 1, verse 6, and let's read through the ninth verse of the second chapter. So, why don't we start down here and just work our way across verse by verse. You can look at the screen or you can read it from your own Bible, but let's go ahead and and read this loudly and clearly so we all have a grasp of what we're looking at this morning. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? If I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts, and the evil priest, that despise my name? And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? He offered polluted bread upon my altar, and he said, Wherein have we polluted thee? And that he said, The table of the Lord is And if he offered the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if he offered the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy government. Would he be pleased with thee, but accept thy person, say the Lord of us? But now I pray God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hand. Will he accept your favorable? Yes, the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name. And if you are offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye have profaned it, in that ye say, The table of the Lord is polluted, and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. He said also, Behold, what a weariness is it! And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Shall I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed you the deceiver, which hath in his flock a man, and vowed and sacrificed unto the Lord a corrupt sin. For I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not let to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because ye do not let it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, and spread down upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him, for the fear wherewith he feared me, and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. The priest's lips shall keep knowledge, and they shall seek the world at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord's church. But ye are departed out of the way, and ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also be here contemptible and pleased. 
Okay, thank you. So this is the second disputation in the book of Malachi. It is the longest and no doubt the most complex of the disputations. We're going to approach it a little bit differently than we did yesterday, and I don't know that we'll get all the way through it, but we're going to try to make at least the major points um, in the first portion in case we don't get all the way through verse by verse. So just by way of introduction, uh, the primary focus here is the covenant failure of the Jerusalem priesthood. Remember, Malachi is back in Jerusalem, and there was an active priesthood there when, when he was ministering. And you can tell, especially from the, the uh, judgment sentence that begins in uh, the middle of the eighth verse and follows on through the rest of the second, um, first nine verses of the second chapter, the Jerusalem priesthood had miserably failed at their duties. And that is the, really the main focus of this disputation. Uh, the, the people are going to be addressed by God later, but primarily this is directed toward the priesthood. One thing you may have noticed on the screen is that there are 11 phrases that are underlined, and those are typically called messenger formulas. I, uh, Malachi uses several different messenger formulas throughout his book. In this particular disputation, with the exception of one that is just barely abbreviated, he always uses the longest messenger formula. And we're going to look at that in a minute, and we'll talk about that uh, but we need to recognize that Malachi is a prophet, and like we talked yesterday, there was no necessarily public official appointment. Malachi would have sort of been on his own as far as people were concerned, and he is facing the priesthood, and he needed all of the authority he could possibly get. And we notice in this disputation that Malachi uses that authority by this messenger formula. One point that we're not going to be able to develop uh, as thoroughly as we'd like is the last bullet point here on the screen, and that is that this disputation makes subtle use of three very important Old Testament blessings. Now we're going to look at those, we're going to read those blessings, and maybe here and there along the way we'll point them out, but I think you would have seen, whoever's next, can you go back to chapter 2? and read verse number three, I think it is. is. Is that the one where they get dung put on their face? Read, read that, please. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on, their, on your faces, the refuse of your solemn feasts, and one will take you away. Okay, so just keep that very pleasant thought in mind for, for a moment, because there's a, there's a point there regarding this last bullet point. But before we go farther, let me just give a very brief introduction to the priesthood. The priesthood came down from, from the patriarch Levi to, through Kohath and Amram and Aaron and Eleazar and Phinehas is, is one of the, the priests of note in the Old Testament. You will recognize that if you 
look up the history of Phineas, he was quite a zealot, and he was very jealous for the Lord. Even though the, the descent is from Levi, most formally in the Scripture, the Scripture talks about the Aaronic priesthood, Aaron's priesthood. Aaron, of course, was Moses' brother, and they were the, the grandsons of Kohath, and the priestly line came through them. So when you hear, sometimes people will talk about the Levitical priesthood as a subset of the, of the Aaronic priesthood, and there were priests and Levites, and there were distinctions in their roles. But understand that, that this is a very royal line coming from the children of Israel, and they had very specific purposes and responsibilities. One of them was to educate the people in the law. And remember yesterday we talked about the importance of the Mosaic law, the importance of the Mosaic covenant overall. They were to administer the provisions of the law, the, the uh, sacrifices and the offerings and the periodic offerings at the temple, and they were to guard proper worship. Now I want you to really look at that point. One of the responsibilities of the, of the Levitical priesthood was to guard, was to preserve proper worship. And I want you to think about that in terms of what Grant was talking to us about last night in, in this perspective, that when God prescribes something to us, when God gives us clear biblical explanation and definition, he expects that to be followed. And, and Grant very ably showed us what happens when, when we start to get off track from that. Same thing here. The same principle applies here. God was very clear, meticulously clear, in the giving of the Mosaic Law. And these men, this priesthood, was tasked with guarding this law and guarding proper worship. The point to make second is that we do not define acceptable worship. You and I do not define acceptable worship. We don't get together and say, okay, let's, let's come up with some novel device by which we will worship God. We will see throughout the book of Malachi God's resistance to pagan-style worship. Um, methods of worship that borrow from uh, pagan culture, methods of worship, if you want to put it in today's terms, methods of worship that borrow from our ungodly secular culture, God is not pleased with that. God is very specific about how he is to be worshipped. And he was even, even probably more minutely detailed about how he was to be worshipped under the Mosaic Covenant. These men, the Levitical priesthood, were tasked with guarding that. They had a very important position in Israel. I'd like to look at these three passages that underlie very subtly, they're very nuanced, but they are there in this passage, um, this disputation in Malachi. I'd like someone to just read these verses. It's, this is the ironic blessing. Let's not, let's not switch. Let, I want someone to read this in its totality. And the reason it's split up like this is because this is, this is just a prelude. This is a little bit of a conclusion. But this, all of you will recognize this. This is the most um, famous, the most important blessing 
in all of Israel. And if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember the history, this would have been repeated to the worshipers multiple times every day. Remember chapter 2, verse 3, what would, what would happen? Dung would, become, would go up on the faces of those who were doing wrong. That is a very subtle message from this passage right here. Go ahead, someone, and read that to us. Speak unto Aaron and unto his son, saying, On this wise he shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee, and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee, and give thee peace. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Now I would like someone to read this Levitical covenant of peace. Numbers, number 25, verses 10 through 13. Someone go ahead and read that whole blessing for us. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, The son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them. But I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God, and then made an atonement for the children of Israel. So you see that Phineas received this blessing, this covenant of peace, because he was zealous for the Lord and for the Lord's will in terms of worship. Oh, excuse me. Oh, no. Now, I, Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning at verse 8. Let's look at this Levitical blessing. Next person, please. And the Levites said, Let thy thumbin, Do any of you students want to take a shot at Thummim and Urim? What were they? Yes. Were they the two stones on the shoulder shoulders of the ephod the priest were? They appeared to be two additional stones. That's correct. That's the general consensus that they were two additional stones or two additional pieces of fabric. But yes, something else upon the ephod of the high priest. These three blessings are important in the history of Israel. These three blessings speak to the children of Israel of God's desire for them of his desire to bless them for faithfulness. And we won't have time to, to graph out any of, of these uh, connections, but I want you to know they're there. As you, as you perhaps read through the book of Malachi, as you, if you choose to study it a little bit more, recognize that these three blessings kind of run in the background, and, and you'll see that Malachi very subtly uses similar phrases but they, they convey the opposite message. They are conveying to the priesthood that they have 
sinned and that they have transgressed the will of the great God whom they professed to be serving. Let's think about this messenger formula for just a moment. There are 11 of these formulas in the this disputation. They are all a long version. I want you just to imagine yourself you're as Malachi and you are facing the priesthood. These are men who could trace their lineage right back up through Aaron and right on back up to Levi. They, they were part of the Levitical priesthood. They had all of the credentials. They had all of the learning. They had all of the power. And here is this one person, this one man about whom we know nothing really. And he is taking on the, the established religion of his day. Malachi had no official credentials. There is nothing he could really produce for these men other than that he spoke to them in the name of the Lord of hosts. And that, that should be enough. That's all he had to offer them. But you notice that he, every step of the way along this disputation, Malachi is speaking for the Lord of hosts. I think he's using this long form exclusively in order to bolster his authority with these men who were no doubt very skeptical. And we don't really have the, the interaction. We do see what happened 400 some years later when Jesus took on the same establishment and even more entrenched in establishment of religious leaders. This is the way the disputation breaks down. The main point, of course, is the neglect of the duties by the Jerusalem priesthood. The purpose is to indict and pronounce judgment on the priesthood. Once we get past the first part of the eighth verse of the first chapter, the rest, the rest of the disputation is God pronouncing curse upon the, this priesthood. The first assertion is that God is not receiving proper honor. You'll notice that this is an expanded framework from what we looked at yesterday. Still the same general principle, but there's more interaction going on between Malachi and the audience. So the first assertion is that God is not receiving proper honor from Israel. They ask, of course, how have we despised God? The answer is you have despised God by offering polluted bread on the altar. Of course, their answer is, their question is, how is the sacrificial bread polluted? And God says in response by offering defective animals for sacrifice. And the implications are that God's law must be honored. <clears throat> now, we are probably not going to get to the implications this morning, but we will um, try to <clears throat> excuse me, point out everything that led to those implications this morning. The very first thing that we see in verse 6 is that God is saying very clearly that he deserves the honor and the respect due to him, not just honor and respect as if he was a father or as if he were a master or as if he were the best among human fathers or the best among human masters, but as a divine father and as divine master, God deserves and expects a uniquely high degree of honor. So let's, let's look at this a little bit. This first assertion and the first question in verse 6. A son honors his father. 
and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts, there's the long version of the messenger formula, unto you, O priests, that despise my name, and ye say, wherein have we despised thy name? Now, Grant's been talking to us about the fatherhood of God, and I, I'm going to offer four passages from the Old Testament that speak to us about God's fatherhood to Israel. I want you to remember, Grant made a very important distinction here. Primarily in the Old Testament, God's role as a father is, is expressed variously throughout the Old Testament. His role as a father to the nation. When we move into the New Testament and we have more abundant testimony from Jesus Christ himself, we recognize God as a more intimate father. We recognize God as, as the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus introduces him as our father. <coughs> Excuse me. Our father as the father of believers. In the old book, God is the father of a nation. And he is saying that he deserves to be honored as the father of the nation. There's also almost 600 times in the Old Testament that God is referred to as the master. So the reason we're not going to get very far is by the time we read 600 references, no, we're not going to. But there are over 600 references to God as master and Lord in the Old Testament. I'd like us to read a couple of these passages regarding God as father in the Old Testament. So Let's just go, whoever's next, let's read the first one from Exodus chapter 4. And thou shalt say to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, and his firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Deuteronomy 32. They have corrupt themselves, their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a diverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord of foolish people, and otherwise? Is not he thy father that hath brought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? So in, in Exodus, God is defending his family against Pharaoh as father. In Deuteronomy 32, God is complaining that his children are not faithfully honoring him. Let's look at Isaiah, two passages in Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, and give you. Callous thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. So we see in the first chapter, in the second verse, that God has nourished and brought up children, and unfortunately, they have rebelled against him. Isaiah is preaching, of course, pre-exile and trying to call the nation to repentance. And then we see in the 63rd chapter that God is Father, Redeemer. His name is from everlasting. So we see a couple of principles there that relate to what Grant has been telling us. In, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, he is, he's provided, he's nourished, he's brought up children. In chapter 63, we see God as, as the Redeemer 
And we see also in connection here with Malachi that his name is from everlasting. We see that in this disputation where, where God says from, from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, his name is intended to be great. Now, does that mean that just daily his name is to be great or does that mean that universally his name is to be great? Universally. It is, it is wherever the sun comes up to wherever the sun goes down across the whole globe and throughout all of creation, God's name is to be great. Now, this is a little bit of a sidebar we're going to go on, but it's the kind of thing I want you to think about when you study your Bibles. You know, Grant, Grant put up study and read and pray and all that, and that's good. I, I really appreciate that because over the course of your life, as, as you engage with your Bible, it is very important that you read your Bible. Just read it over and over again. Over, I mean, in my pickup truck, if I, I'm on the road quite a bit, and I just roll through the New Testament multiple times a week, I just listen to it or turn it down low, and it, it's over and over and over again, that, that is sort of the on-the-road equivalent of just reading. Read, 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 read for familiarity. I want you to read your Bibles all the time. But I also want you to study your Bible. So, so if my truck with the New Testament playing all the time, that is sort of a, just a wide swath. I'm, I'm just listening. And, and sometimes I'm not even consciously listening. I might actually be talking on the phone or recording a voice memo or just driving along thinking about what I have to think about, but it's always in the background. That's different than studying. Studying, you're going to drop that plow deep. There, there, is, there, is, no, um, there is no prize for how many times you read through your Bible. There's no, there's no prize for how many verses you memorize, though memorization is, is also on my list. But I do want you to realize that there is great blessing in just slowing down and going deep into the Scripture. Just set that plow. I, I believe there's an old, isn't there a proverb that says the race is not to the swift? And I think that applies in this portion of Bible study. Drop down deep into the Word. Look at the, even the little things. The little things can turn into beautiful truths, and this is one of them. There is something in, in the study of biblical theology that is called name theology. Name theology is a fascinating study. And so we're going we're to kind of pull aside here a little bit to think about this. The essential ideas contained in the concept of name theology are these. God's greatness is ultimately, this is an assumption, a presupposition. Let me, God's greatness is ultimately beyond human comprehension. We can understand some things about God. We can, we can grow in our understanding of God, but, but we all know that we are never going to get to the bottom of God. We are just never going to fully understand God. And so we find in the scriptures that God manifests an essence or a representation of himself by the term name. You saw that several times in the readings that we had this morning. Name signifies his representative, authoritative, essential presence. Now, that's a, that's a bunch of big words that says God uses the concept of name to express who he is. 
it's not a it's not necessarily a perfect or complete representation but it is an extremely important representation and i want to look at a couple of those this is what i want you to see young people as you study the scripture don't overlook this kind of thing when when god says something like this and and he uses he uses his that word name multiple times throughout this book we saw it in, in the blessing, especially in, in the, the first blessing in, um, that we looked at. He puts his name on certain things. So I want you to see, we're just going to look at this first one here, and then we're going to look at here at Kings and make a couple of comments about this. Name theology. It's important because one of the things that the priests were supposed to do was to put their, the name of God upon the people. They were to put the name of God upon the people. We read that. Someone read um, this passage to us. Whoever's next, read the whole passage, please. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way, to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his words. Provoke him now, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice, and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, and an adversary unto thine adversaries. My angels shall go before thee, and bring thee in as the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Okay, so let's go to this point right here. God has placed his name in this angel. This angel is a manifestation of of an essence, a representative representation of God himself. This angel is signifying all that God is. He's representative. He's authoritative. He is expressing God's essential presence. In other words, God is saying, if you see this angel, if you deal with this angel, it is like dealing with God. And so God can say very clearly, beware of him, obey his voice, provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. In other words, if you disobey this angel, if you provoke this angel, if you are not, if you are not acutely aware of him, that is the same as doing that to God himself. Next passage, 1 Kings chapter 8. Someone read that for me, please. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven And so God places his name in the temple, and it has the same authority as what we saw in the angel. God is saying, my name is there. It is the same thing as saying that God is there. These are both from the Old Testament. John chapter 5, verse 43 says that Jesus came in the Father's name. John 14, 26 tells us that the Father sent the Spirit in Jesus' name. 
And so that truth invests tremendous spiritual authority in everything that the Spirit says and does and everything that Jesus says and does. In fact, and, and maybe we'll look at that a little bit more this evening, when, when Jesus is very clear in, in the 16th chapter of John that the things that He has, He gives to the Spirit and the Spirit gives them to, to the church. And those things that Jesus possesses are things that God has, the Father has given to Him. There is a very direct line of authority and blessing that is passed from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the church. And it is all done in the name of God the Father. We are seeing this here. We saw it in the Aaronic blessing it, that, that God's name was to be placed upon the people by the priesthood. And the priesthood had failed at that. We need to, we need to be very clear on what the condemnation of the priesthood was, and that was that they were violating the tenets of the Mosaic Covenant. They were violating the will of God for His people. And they were the ones who were supposed to be the guardians of that covenant, but they were not fulfilling their role the way they should. So let's look at the first response, the second question, and the second response. God is responding now to Israel asking, how have we polluted it? God says, ye offer polluted bread upon my altar, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible, and if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? The first point to establish here is that the priests are violating the most fundamental principle of the Mosaic law. Can somebody tell me what, what I have in mind there? What am I saying when I say that they are violating the most fundamental law of Moses? It is this, that the first and the best always belong to the Lord. The first and the best always belong to the Lord. Never did the Lord prescribe anything but absolute perfection in sacrifice. Never. Partially, I think, that is because what the, that is what the Lord deserves, is the first and the absolute best. But I think ultimately it is because these, these um, Levitical sacrifices, the, these Mosaic sacrifices, ultimately are types that point to the Lord Jesus. And, and the assurance that we need to have from that is to know that all the way back there at the time of Moses, God was demanding the first and the best of all sacrifices. That's the, that is the minimum requirement, absolute perfection. Those animals had to be perfect physically perfect. If we fast forward to Calvary and we have the ultimate sacrifice, the better sacrifice, the sacrifice that will accomplish what the new covenant promises, we, ha we have a sacrifice in the Lord Jesus who no doubt was not physically perfect. There's no indication that he was physically perfect. In fact, Isaiah would suggest that, that there is no beauty that we would desire him 
But the fact of the matter is he was morally, ethically, spiritually perfect. The sacrifices under Moses were as perfect as they could be, and that was physical perfection. They had no moral standing before God. Jesus Christ, as the ultimate sacrifice, the antitype of the, of the Mosaic sacrifices, <coughs> excuse me, was, was spiritually perfect. He was as perfect as any sacrifice could be. Nobody should have known this better than the priests of the Levitical order. And instead, they were offering imperfect sacrifices. The priests held the table of the Lord in contempt. They asked how, how, how we offered polluted bread. They offered polluted bread by offering inferior animals in sacrifice. I just want you to think about that for a moment because we need to talk about that. <clears throat> That word contempt, contemptible, is a very strong word in the Scripture. These men were disesteeming the table of the Lord. They were despising the table of the Lord. They, they were disgracing the table of the Lord. They were compromising on God's order of worship. Remember, these are the guardians of God's order of worship, and they are violating it at every turn. This, is, this relates back to what Grant was talking about last night, what happens when you violate God's order. And these men who were supposed to be leading the people into a closer walk with God were offering sacrifices that were not suitable. The language of this disputation is pretty clear. This was not an accidental failure to maintain standards. You know, sometimes we just miss things. In, in our Christian walk, we're, 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 we aren't mature enough, we have a blind spot, we're, we're in a dry period of our Christian life, and we can miss something. And, and it's an honest mistake. It's just a, it's just a mistake of, of immaturity or of a, of a period of our, of our Christian walk, and we can miss that. And, and God can bring that to our, to our heart, and we can repent of it, and we can grow in that area. That is not what is happening here. What is happening here is not accidental. It is, it is voluntary, purposeful, disbelief, neglect, rebellion against the Word of God, against the will of God, against the prescribed order of worship. And that is, that is a um, circumstance that ought to give us a lot of pause and and cause us to think about our own level of worship. I'd like to do that. Let me, just, let me just put one more line up on this screen. I told Grant and Raymond, I was getting tired of hearing Raymond quoted so much in the morning, but I'm going to quote him again now. Do you remember, do you remember this sequence here? I've got four words, worship, sacrifice, offering, and dedication. Remember what Raymond told us last night. Worship involves a sacrifice. Worship always involves a sacrifice. Let me give you an idea about that. Um, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Everybody familiar with that? Romans chapter 1, 
You present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Offering your body a living sacrifice, the, the words of, of that passage talk about yielding up your body as a living sacrifice. If, if, if I was artistic, I would put a, an altar there and I would, I would show some, somebody crawling up onto that altar. A living sacrifice, placing yourself up on that altar every day of your life. It's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. It, it, it depicts giving ourselves everything that we are, all that we have to the Lord. Worship involves sacrifice. Now, have you ever thought about sacrifice in terms, say, of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15? Because you might be saying, well, wait a minute, I don't offer sacrifices to the Lord. I'm not under the old covenant. But we do offer sacrifices to the Lord all the time. Somebody read Hebrews 13, 15, because I'm not able to quote it clearly off the top of my head. Not all at once, just one of you. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God, Okay, thank you. So do you ever do you ever recognize that, that the singing you're doing here is not just a, just a, an activity to do, it is actually a sacrifice. It it is a sacrifice of praise. It's the fruit of your lips. It comes from your heart. We'll say, well, what does that have to do? God, God doesn't prescribe how I should sing. Well, does he? Do you, sing with, do you sing with no spirit, no understanding, or do you sing with the spirit and with the understanding? Worship, sacrifice, offering. There is a prescribed way to do these things. Why is this important? We've looked a little bit at, the, at it, how it works out in Malachi, but it works out in our lives too, young folks. Worship. You know... Everything we're doing here is worship. Singing is not worship to the exclusion of reading the scripture. It's all part of worship. Prayer is worship. Praise is worship. Worship involves a certain level of sacrifice. It is an offering to the Lord, but it's more than just an offering to the Lord. Those animals, and we didn't even talk in any detail, there's not enough time to talk in detail about what they were doing. Why in the world would a Levitical priest allow the people to offer a lame animal? Why would he do that? Well, why would, why would, a, why would a modern pastor allow his worship service to, to be full of, of Zen Buddhism and, and New Age light shows and rock music with Jesus words in it? Why would he do that? It's, it, it's all the same thing. It is, the, it is the inability or it is the refusal to understand that worship slash sacrifice slash offering is more than just a meal or it's more than just a type of music. It is an expression of the dedication of the worshiper to God. And, and the dedication of the worshiper is not defined by the worshiper. 
The worshiper does not define acceptable worship. God does. And just like in the day of Malachi, when God could say, I, I won't. I'll put dung on your face. I refuse you. I won't listen to you. I won't, I won't, there won't be a pleasant odor in my nostrils. He totally rejected that kind of thing. It's the same thing here. What I want you to get more than anything else out of this second disputation, and, and we, have, we have barely even scratched the surface of it, is that God is your Father. God is your Master. God defines acceptable relationship with Him. You do not. God defines what worship He will accept and what worship He will not accept. And it becomes incumbent upon us as ministers of the gospel to make sure that we are accurately expressing the will of God to His people. It is incumbent upon these young, younger brothers back here who are fathers to make sure that they are teaching their children the truth of the Scripture, it is incumbent upon all of you to live according to the biblical teaching that you receive. That's how God says He will be honored. We do not want to offer lame, sick, blind sacrifices. We want to offer sacrifices of worship and praise that are prescribed by the Word and that are acceptable to God. Are there any questions? Any comments? Yes, Caleb. So the comment on sacrifice, um, if we look at David and Saul as an example, uh, Saul, uh, in 1 Samuel 15, he, when he was commanded to slaughter Amalek and all of the people, he brought back all the oxen and etc. Mm-hmm. And he brought that back to sacrifice, he said. But David, on the other side, when he numbered all the people, uh, Arona offered him the land and the animals and etc. But David said, no, I have to buy it because I cannot sacrifice that which costs me nothing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, sacrifice costs us something. Sacrifice can be very costly. That's right. Mm-hmm. Worship can be very costly because it involves that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Why don't Why don't we pray and then we'll turn it back over to whoever's taking care of this. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for the message from antiquity that from everlasting to everlasting you are God and you change not. You are universally sovereign. You have high expectations from your people of how you are to be worshipped. Father, may it never be said of us in whatever stage of life we're in, whatever whatever position in life that we're in, may it never be said of us that we purposefully, intentionally led others astray from what your word clearly teaches. 
especially, Father, as we think about <clears throat> the priority of worship. May it be characteristic of those of us in this room and those of us of, and th those with whom we worship that we are careful, we are conscientious in the spirit and by the word to worship you according to your perfect will. Father, we just bask in the reality <clears throat> of you as our Father, our Father in heaven, our Father who is sovereign over all things. We embrace you as Father, as Lord, as Master. We entrust our eternity to you and to the truth of your word. And thus may we live each day upon earth according to your will, honoring you, placing your face, your name upon those we contact and have influence over. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.